All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip with us. We'll be in Acts chapter 25. We're in the middle slash toward the end of a sermon series we're doing on the book of Acts. And so that's what we like to do here at FC Cube is, is work our way through books. And so we've been walking through the book of Acts, um, trying to see what it looks like when a group of people faithfully follows Christ and faithfully fulfills their vocation, their mission of being those who, who give witness to the resurrection, give witness to the power of Jesus in uh, the world as we know it. So one of our, our goals here at First Colony, uh, or kind of our mission statement, is to make disciples, to be disciples, so to be people who follow Jesus, and then create people, to, to minister to people, to reach out to people, and then kind of multiply ourselves. And so we create disciples who then go and create disciples. This is our mission statement, to glorify God as we make disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the harder things about fulfilling that mission, about fulfilling that, that vocation, making disciples who then go and make disciples, is knowing exactly what decisions we need to make. It's decision-making. It's knowing, how do I know that I should go here and not go here? How do I know I should take this job or take this job? How do I know I should be in this relationship or be in this relationship? What is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do so that he will work through me to make disciples who make disciples? So this morning's message, I've titled it, Decision Making for Disciple Makers. I'm getting better at this whole preaching thing, all right? I don't have three points, but we're getting closer, okay? Soon we'll have acronyms, all right? It'll all work really nicely. Um, so this morning I want to talk about, we're going to see in Acts, Paul make one of his boldest decisions, one of his boldest moves so far in the story. And I want to kind of look at that and analyze it and see what goes on in Paul's decision-making process. What does it look like? How do disciple makers make decisions? I think sometimes Christians can do some weird things when it comes to trying to figure out what God's will is. Okay, sometimes, sometimes I think we, we just kind of veer off into strange territory. And so a lot of the time, when I hear people talk about God's will, it's in one or two contexts. Either they're horribly confused and paralyzed, right? I have no idea what God's will is for my life. I want to follow him, I want to obey him, but I just have no idea what that means for me. Or... They know maybe more than they should. God told me. Oh, you, you have a hotline to God. Okay, that's, that you, have a, you, you have this kind of relationship with God where God talks to you. It's this very kind of supernatural relationship. And if I'm being honest, okay, I, this sounds like a bad pastor thing to say, right? But if I'm being honest, in my pastoral experience, when people say God told me, it usually means I know this is an immature decision and I don't want you to argue with me about it, right? It's like the trump card. Well, don't argue with me. <laughs> argue with God, right? This is coming from up top, all right? This is above my pay grade. So, so I work at a high school during the week, all right? There's something in a past life I did wrong. I'm being punished uh, during the week. <laughs> that doesn't work theologically, okay? So don't, don't analyze that. Um, but in, in the high school world, okay, you have relationships that start up, okay? Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, and they get in this relationship. Um, I, I always think, I always tell the kids, right, they can start a relationship. I think y'all could both do better, okay? And they're kind of like, what does that mean? I'm just think about it. Uh, now, girl eventually stops liking boy, okay? Because boy's lazy and he plays video games and he doesn't really have anything he's doing with his life, all right? But girl doesn't want to tell that to boy. So girl in a Christian private school, maybe you're not familiar with this, but girl tells boy, God told me to break up with you. <laughs> Which is like, 
horrible on lots of levels, right? Not only is the girl rejecting you, but God himself apparently <laughs> thinks it's not going to work out too well, okay? It's not you, it's me. But I don't think this relationship is going to last very long, right? Um, God, God told me, God told me. And you want to go, okay, well, well, I mean, what's the confirmation of this? What do you mean God told you? How does that work? And if it's true that you and I are supposed to get this direct word from God about decisions we're supposed to make, how does that happen? How does that, how does that work, okay? So, so what does decision-making look like for, for disciple-makers? We'll look at that. We'll pick it up in Acts 25 this morning as we see Paul make a pretty big decision. We'll actually start in 24-27. Uh, just to get kind of the context of where we are. If you remember, we've been in the same story for like three or four chapters, okay? Um, Paul went to Jerusalem, uh, early Christian apostle. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested there, okay? He gets put in jail at Caesarea. He goes on trial after trial after trial. No conclusion is reached by anybody, except it seems like Paul didn't do anything wrong, but it's just sticky on every side. And Paul, we leave off, is held up in red tape at Caesarea for two years, so two years of being in prison, being chained. So twenty four, twenty seven. When two years had elapsed, Felix, who's the Roman governor, was succeeded by Portius Festus, a new Roman governor. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So there's a regime change, Paul's still in prison in Caesarea. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So it's kind of amazing that over two years, I mean, this is how much the chief priests hated Paul. They've had two years, and this is still the first thing they say when the new governor shows up. Hey, you got this guy named Paul in Caesarea. We want him here. And on the way, we've got this plan to, to get rid of him, okay? I'm imagining maybe this is the same people who took that vow not to eat or drink, right, until they killed Paul. So they're a lot slimmer and thinner when you meet them here two years later. They're barely standing. They're a little woozy. They're like, look, we've got to get Paul down to Jerusalem. We need to take care of this guy. Verse 4. Festus replied, Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself <coughs> intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong with him... Let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. We've seen this before. Verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Again, Here's, I mean, this is a running scene over and over and over again in Acts, okay? These trumped up charges are brought against Paul, and Paul gets proved innocent every time. He hasn't broken any Jewish laws. Now, he does believe the Jewish promises have been fulfilled. Messiah, the great promised king, has arrived, but he's not broken any laws. He hasn't defiled the temple. In fact, when he got arrested, remember, he was actually going out of his way so as not to defile the temple. He was going through this purification ritual. And he hasn't broken any Roman laws either, okay? Now, for sure... He's a threat to the Roman way of life when people convert and their, their loyalties and allegiances change. But Paul's not calling for violent insurrection, revolution, anything like that. He says, I haven't broken Roman laws. I haven't broken Jewish laws. I haven't defiled the temple. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So Festus sees a way to get rid of this problem. Okay, He just took over and so... Uh, he's got literally and metaphorically probably lots of things on his desk as he tries to sort out what's happening in the area that he's now 
governor over. And he's got this, this guy named Paul as a Roman citizen. The Jews want him dead. He realizes he needs the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem on his side. Okay, It's a messy area to try to govern. You've got to make friends with the right people. He also realizes, though, Paul's a Roman citizen, and Paul's a smart guy. And so if he does something wrong to a Roman citizen, he might be out of a job as soon as he got it. So his conclusion is, here's what I'll do. I'll send him down to Jerusalem to be tried there again by the people who know the situation more than I do, and let the Jews do what they want to do when he gets there. Okay? Then he gets killed, but it's not my fault, right? I was trying to let him char- get charged, let him face the accusers, those type of things. Paul, though, again, thinking a step ahead, says, verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, and I ought to be tried here. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. This, this Greek phrase, give me up to them, is a negative phrase. It's a hand me over. It's a push me off into the justice, right, that some of the Jewish leaders give to Christians in Jerusalem. And then he says this, I appeal to Caesar. And this is the game changer. He says, I want to talk to the emperor. I want to talk to the king of kings. I want to talk to the one guy who's in charge of everything around here. And Festus realizes this and says, all right, when he had conferred with this council, answered, to Caesar you've appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, uh, Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. All right. Now, back in the day, in this kind of Jewish uh, Judea area, you had this weird system of power and governing, and it was really complicated to, to work out. But three of the most high people in charge are the Roman governor, the king of Judea, the king of the Jews, often put there by the Romans, and then the high priest. And in the Gospels, when Jesus is in trouble in Jerusalem, you see all three of these people conferring. And their power kind of overlaps and interlocks, and it's sometimes hard to tell whose authority starts where and ends where. Okay. Well, here you have the same thing. We've already seen the high priest involved, the Roman governor has been involved, and now he's inviting the new king, King Agrippa, to come talk about the matter, okay? And, and Fest is actually going to ask a favor of Agrippa. Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, uh, throughout the Gospels, this is a, a line of rulers who were king of the Jews. Agrippa was actually pretty popular with the Romans and the Jewish people uh, and was supposed to be a Jewish person. depends on what Jew you asked, whether he really was or wasn't. Now, what's really interesting is his uh, little girl here he brings, Okay. Again, because we're reading thousands of years later, thousands of years later, we don't quite pick up on everything that's happening here. But but this girl, Bernice, is Agrippa's wife slash sister. Alright? Which okay, and that's the same reaction they would have had back then, too. There's this is tabloid fodder, okay? There's lots of whispering and rumors. This is just a weird relationship. She was actually married to their uncle. Yeah, it's it's like a Jerry Springer show, okay, I realize that. She was married to his uncle, and then when he died, she shacked up with her brother, Agrippa. People were talking and making faces like that, so she married the king of Cilicia, but after two or three years, got bored with him and went back to Agrippa, okay? So this is almost like if, if you're telling a story about Billy Graham meeting Marilyn Monroe, okay? Just something like that, right? It's just kind of interesting. First interview, you'll be like, what in the world? Paul's meeting this, this woman. Um, but Agrippa and Bernice come, and they greet Festus, verse 14, and as they stayed there, so, I mean, remember, if you go back to the end of Luke, when Jesus, before he's killed, there's a Roman governor asking 
a Herod for advice, right? This is all vaguely familiar to what's already happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case as such evils as I suppose. He said it seemed pretty empty to me. Now this is really interesting. We're going to get to see what an outsider would say about Paul and about Christians and about what Paul is preaching. It's pretty interesting. Verse 19, here's his conclusion. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. So he said, this looks like a theological debate to me. And about a certain Jesus. A certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So, so Festus has been paying attention, all right? I mean, he's, he's kind of got a grasp on what's going on here. Yeah, this, this is kind of the issue. Now, being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and he tried there and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. And tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. So this is, I mean, again, this is a pretty comical, interesting scene here. Paul's being brought in again, and now it's like this big performance. It's kind of like entertainment, okay? Uh, it's kind of like the United States elections, okay? A whole lot of entertainment, a whole lot of distractions, and really, a lot of times, nothing that dramatic actually happens, right? And sometimes, election season is a way, I think, of distracting us from the more important work, right? So people get really fired up about voting for president or Congress or House, and, and there's maybe nothing wrong about that, right? But there's a lot of things even in like local politics and local elections and things in your neighborhood and community that you can actually be doing, right? To invest and to change something and to make a difference for God's kingdom. But, but sometimes these kind of things are just more kind of entertainment. And sometimes distract us from the real work to be done, right? Around us in our daily lives, that kind of a thing. But you got this big kind of festival entertainment thing happening. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. There's quite a scene. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Here's the real problem for Festus. He doesn't get what's going on, Okay. It's not good if he sends Caesar a prisoner and can't give a good reason why this prisoner needs to go see Caesar, right? He's got to get to the bottom of these charges so that Caesar doesn't look and be like, why am I dealing with a prisoner over these theological disputes within the Jewish people? Okay, and he's going, Agrippa, you know more about this than I do. Can you help me kind of get a good letter, right, that I can send to the, the emperor? So, therefore, I brought him before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. Verse 27, it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner and not indicate the charges against him. Okay, now I want to zero in. What we have here in this chapter, the entire story changes, and Paul, again, brings out kind of a trump card. 
He says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, this was kind of the last defense you had to keep injustice happening to you. This is not the type of appeal where you're appealing a sentence, right? A verdict. There's no verdict has been reached. No sentence has been given to Paul. He's trying to appeal to go be tried before the emperor, to get the emperor to listen to his case. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, Paul's been stuck in red tape for two years. And what we know is this. Paul had this vocation, even this command from Jesus himself that he was supposed to go to Rome. And for two years, he sat there in prison, chained, in endless trials and interviews with nothing happening. And he's wondered, how and when am I going to get to Rome? If you put back with me to Acts uh, chapter 1, I want to show you this um, kind of theological program of, of the gospel going to Rome. So Luke, when he writes the gospel, Luke has this geographical journey kind of framing it. It's Jesus traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, something big happens. Jesus dies and resurrects. Then when Luke picks up an axe, it's still geographical, it's still this journey, but now it's from Jerusalem to Rome. And that's kind of how the whole book is laid out. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you have kind of this co-centric circle, okay? Right here in Jerusalem, then you're going to spread out to Judea Samaria, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And this is kind of like the thesis statement for Acts. You could actually outline the book according to these three stages, okay? And what we know from Romans, Paul writes Romans right before he goes to Jerusalem, gets arrested, is Paul wanted to go to Rome to get funding and support so he could go to Spain, a place where the gospel had never been before. Rome is the capital of the entire world. It's going to be the best base you have to go to the ends of the earth. And Paul was nothing if he wasn't a big dreamer and a big goal setter. And Paul actually in Romans says, I've done everything I need to do here. He says, I've, I've done what I need to do. Now, there's lots of unconverted people, right? But he started the churches. They have their task in front of them. Paul says, I'm going to Spain where no one's been. And we're going to take the gospel as far as humans exist. We're going to push and push and push. This is Paul's dream. This is what he thinks he's doing. If you flip to Acts chapter 19, Paul gets kind of clarity on what he's supposed to be doing. On his mission and his vocation to go to Rome. Acts 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, this after the riot in Ephesus, I resolved, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. I'm going to the capital city of the entire world. Now, there's a translation issue whether this spirit, capital S, should be capital S. Whether this is the Holy Spirit or Paul's spirit. Whether he's resolved in spirit. You could go really either way. There's no indication in the text. I might even be inclined to think that the maybe it should be lowercase here, okay? Paul has resolved in his spirit. Um, we see this in Acts chapter 18. It's used that way right before this passage. Talk about Apollos. Um, but Paul has this vocation, right, to go to Rome. If you flip to Acts chapter 23, Jesus himself will show up and confirm this. Acts 23, verse 11. He just got arrested in Jerusalem. And in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As clear as it can be, right? Jesus shows up and says, Don't worry. I know it looks bad here, 
but you're going to Rome. And Paul's saying, good, because that's how I'm going to get to Spain. Paul has this dream. He has this vocation. He has this sense that this is where he's headed. He's supposed to go to Rome. He gets arrested in Jerusalem and taken away, but not to Rome, to Caesarea, where he gets put in chains and goes through trial after trial after trial for years through a whole regime change with different people coming in and coming out, stuck in red tape, praying and thinking and thinking and praying. And then when the new governor shows up, Paul pulls out his trump card. And Paul, watch this, decides to take matters into his own hands. I appeal to Caesar. Take me to Rome. Now there's lots of interesting questions here. One is this. Is this really how Paul wanted to go to Rome? This is going to ensure he gets to Rome, but as a prisoner. And probably is going to die in Rome as a prisoner. So Acts, we'll see this, it, spoiler alert, okay, he goes to Rome, but, but Acts ends open-ended. We don't know what happens in Rome. Perhaps he gets out of chains and goes to Spain. Most people think he dies in Rome under the Emperor Nero. That's who would have been in charge at that time, if you've heard of that. He wasn't too fond of Christians. Did Paul just ensure his death? Did he just kill his dream? He's been praying and praying, and nothing's happening, and he knows he can force the issue. And the governor shows up and he says, I want to go to Caesar. I have that right. It gets more interesting if you flip to the end of chapter 26. Uh, so, so we'll look through the speech he gives Agrippa in 26 next week, but just look at the end here, verse 30. The king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, Watch this. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, Paul probably would have, wouldn't have heard this. I don't know what he would have thought, perhaps, if he had have heard this. But here's a question. Would Paul make a mistake? Would he really have been set free had he guaranteed himself a spot in this prison system <clears throat> by appealing to Caesar? If he would have waited for this one more trial, one more interview, would that have unlocked him? All these different questions. And I think that brings us to the heart of something we've seen for the past few chapters in, in Paul and in Acts, which is how does Paul make his decisions? How does a disciple maker make their decisions? Do they wait for a special revelation from the Lord? For God to show up and talk to them in a special way? Or do they make decisions with what we might call wisdom? So I think this is what Paul's doing here. Okay, And we'll argue this this morning. We'll, we'll talk about it for a little bit. I think Paul is simply using the wisdom he's been given to make decisions the best he knows how at the times that he's put in. So I think Paul discerns this. He's going to be snuffed by this new king, by the Jews. Somehow or another, King Festus wants to, or Governor Festus wants to get him to Jerusalem. And when he picks up on that, he goes, here's what I see. I have something in my toolbox and get me to Rome. And every other option I'm looking at right now means death. So I appeal to Caesar. I think there's an important point here. 
which is sometimes Christians pray and pray and pray and are called to act. Sometimes, perhaps, God, His intention of fulfilling our prayers is through our wise action. How, how do you and I make decisions? How does Paul make decisions here? Jesus in the Gospels tells his disciples to be as innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent. As innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent. And, and Paul is one of the wiser people that I've ever heard of. Okay, You've seen this over and over and over again. So remember back a few chapters. Paul's on the council in Jerusalem and he brings up resurrection knowing that the Sadducees and the Pharisees disagree about it. And they start fighting each other and forget about him. Right? He surveys the situation and goes, here's what we need to do. And then, again, in this situation, right? he, he feels, he senses death. He senses a, a death sentence coming his way, and, and he appeals to Caesar. Now, in Acts, 15 to 20 times, God shows up in a special, direct way and gives special, specific instructions to people. Okay? 15 to 20 times, and most of them are to the Apostle Paul. And this is where some Christians get the idea that if they're faced with a decision to make, they should wait until God tells them something, right? Or shows up in some miraculous, special way. That he gives them the specific, divine, direct revelation, guidance. Now what's interesting about this is, is every time this happens in Acts for Paul, which it, it happens, it happens in very specific ways. Through visions, an angel, physical miracle, audible voice, or a prophet. Here's where we need to be consistent as Christians, okay? If we're going to say that's the norm for you and I when we're faced with decisions, we also need to say the norm will be through these means. So it's a big jump to say God told me just like he told Paul certain things unless I received a vision, right? Or an audible voice or Jesus showed up beside me. When Paul is getting these direct revelations from God, it's not this feeling he has in his heart and his mind, right? It's not this test he gave God that God came through on. It's not him simply surveying the opportunities around him. I would, in fact, say this. Even those occasions are not the norm for Paul himself. That's not how he normally makes decisions. In the book of Acts, the apostles are faced with certain problems. The first big one, if you remember way back when in Acts chapter 6, there are widows who aren't eating. In their, their community. And if you go read the story, the apostles, full of wisdom, figured out a plan and figured out who to run it. They didn't wait for God to show up and give them the special revelation because he had received, he had given them wisdom. And they surveyed the situation and said, what is best here? And they acted on it. The second big problem to face the apostles in the book of Acts is the circumcision issue. Uh, should Gentiles have to be circumcised? In Acts 15, the big Jerusalem council, when they get together and rule that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be Christians, three times in Acts 15, you'll see this phrase, it seemed good, it seemed good, it seemed good. I think the actual apostolic norm, the norm of the apostles in decision making, is the use of wisdom. The use of wisdom. I think this is how they make decisions, and I think this is how, actually, in Paul's letters, he commands us to make decisions over and over again. In fact, in our uh, Bible, in our canon, there's a whole genre of literature called wisdom literature, designed to teach us how to make wise and appropriate choices. So flip real quick. I'll just show you a couple of these. Um, flip to 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. Flip to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 16. I have a list of, of dozens of these. And I'm trying to pick the best ones here. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. To your right a little bit. This is a letter Paul wrote. He's going to be talking about the money he's bringing to Jerusalem, which was a big part of his plan, his, his, his mission as an apostle, to take this money to Jerusalem. That's what got him arrested. And watch the way he talks about making this decision in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Watch that. What, what's Paul's criteria for whether he's going to take the money to Jerusalem or just send it there? Which, again, turns out to be one of the biggest parts of his plan as an apostle, to take this money to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable. He says, if the circumstances match up the way that makes it seem like it's the best decision for me to make. So I did a series uh, called Knowing God's Will, on, on discerning God's will, about two years ago exactly here at, at, at FCQ. And this year, here's what I argued. When we think of God's will, and you can find this online, I think it was four parts. When we think of God's will, we think of God's sovereign will. So this is his kind of secret will where he's in control of everything. And we don't know it. We're not supposed to know it. We just trust in it, right? And nothing you can do can get you outside of God's sovereign will, right? You can't do anything that surprises him, that you know, tricks him, okay? Sovereign will covers everything. And then you have God's moral will, his revealed will, which is about the type of person he wants you to be. It's broad stroke, right? It would maybe include the command, make disciples who make disciples. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. And then what you and I have searched for, with it perhaps not being there in the Bible, is that what we call an individual will, which is a blueprint for your life, for my life. I'm not sure, again, that there is such a thing in the scriptures. And if there is, I can definitely tell you we're never given instruction on how to find it. So what Christians do is they come up with these sometimes immature and sometimes confusing and sometimes superstitious ways of discerning God's will for their lives. So they, they try to look at circumstances and opportunities, right? And the problem with this is people can interpret circumstances and opportunities in different ways, right? What you might say would be God opening the door for you to go do that. I might say is Satan tempting you, right? Neither of these is God telling us anything. It's just a circumstance. It's just opportunities. You can interpret it in different ways. Or we, we do this thing where we set up these fleeces for God. So this is from an Old Testament story where you kind of you've got a test, right? And if, the, if in the morning the fleece is wet, that means God's saying yes. Okay, if it's not, it means God's saying no. If actually you go back and read the story from Judges, this actually is not a disobedience. So this is not something we should be like modeling after. Okay, don't put God to the test. Actually, God had already told them what to do, and this was him not believing, and so requiring a test over and over and over again. What you do find, though, again, over and over and over in the scriptures, and I think that's what Paul's doing here, is using wisdom. Using wisdom, making the best decision with what he knows God has revealed to him. Wisdom we might define as, as skill in the art of living. That's my favorite definition for wisdom. Skill in the art of living. J.I. Packer defines it like this. He says, Wisdom is the power to see, 
and the inclination to choose, the power to see, and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. So what's the goal? Where am I going in life? What has God revealed to me? What type of person should I be? What should I be about? Making disciples, a virtuous person, faithful person, hopeful person, joyful person, loving person. And then what's the best way for me to do that? Paul knew he had this this revelation from God to go to Rome. And when faced with this situation with, with King Festus, he said, now what's the best way in this situation for me to get to Rome? And he said, I've got to pull this out. I appeal to Caesar. How did he come to that? I think using wisdom. I think discerning the situation around him. When you and I are faced with different choices, I think that's what, what we're called to do. Is say, okay, we know our end game. We know our goal. We know what we're supposed to be about. What decision puts me in the best place to make disciples? What decision puts me in the best opportunity to use my time and resources and skills in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord? Perhaps we, we shouldn't think that this kind of divine, personal, direct guidance is the norm. Now, here's what I would say. I don't think that can't happen. Right? I, I believe the Spirit's still here, still working, much the same way as He's always been working. Okay? I'm not the anti-spiritual, anti-supernatural kind of person. I just think, again, you've got to be consistent with that. Right? If, if you're going to say that God spoke to you in that way, He's going to speak to you in the same means. Right? It's not, it's not just a feeling you got in your heart or in your mind. I think the scriptures do give us very clear ways that you and I are supposed to discern decisions and, and use our wisdom. James says we're supposed to ask for wisdom. We ask for it. We ask for God to give us the power to see. We ask for God to, to show us the highest goal. We have lots of wisdom in our scriptures. Again, a whole, whole genre of literature to teach us wisdom. I think we're supposed to find wisdom in godly counsel and community. I think this really is where the, the God told me thing breaks down for me. Is when you use that as a way of shutting out your community. Shutting out the people around you who are saying, well, well this is our angle on this. I think we're supposed to go to believers who have maybe more experience than we do. Who've gone through certain things that we haven't gone through. Who see things from a different angle. Who sometimes know us better than we know ourselves. That's one of the big things about community, right? The, the best person at lying to me is me. I need people around me to be able to see the truth sometimes and say, well, this is what's really happening. Let me give you some wisdom here. Now, here's the thing. Even godly counsel, even your community needs to be evaluated by wisdom. Then this was, this was kind of messing with me. Okay. So a couple chapters ago, we saw Paul and we'll look at it on his way to Jerusalem, have two groups of people beg with him not to go to Jerusalem. In fact, one of those groups, the text says, was telling him that through the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that told him to go to Jerusalem, it's this whole weird situation where Paul twice, with people begging him, keeps on going, and I'm thinking, Paul is a stubborn little child. And I'm thinking, this is kind of throwing a wrench in everything I thought, right? So wants to take it to your community, take it to your godly council. Uh, so go back to Acts 21. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. Again, he thinks he's going to stop in Jerusalem, go to Rome. It's been further, further revealed to him. In Acts 21, we're going to skip the first four verses. It's a lot of names. I don't want to embarrass myself. Verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, the entire 
we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, capital S, again, same translation issue, should it be through their Spirit or the Holy Spirit? They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. It's a real touching scene, but Paul gets to know these disciples in, in seven days and one week. And they plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. But he says goodbye. They high-five each other. They pray on the beach. And he sails off into the sun to go to Jerusalem. The very next place they go, a prophet shows up, Agabus. Remember this? And, and the prophet comes up and ties hands and feet together and says, this is what will happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And upon hearing that prophecy, verse 12, when we heard this, the we is the disciples with Paul, his team. This is his community. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Second group of people. This group, much more closer to him. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And since... He would not be persuaded. We ceased and said that the will of the Lord be done. Now again, I'm reading this and going, look, if I've got a decision in front of me and everyone around me is telling me not to go do that, I think rational Mike is telling me, don't do it, dummy. Listen to everybody around you and don't go. So what's happening here? I'm, Paul's being stubborn. Is Paul pulling that, God told me, deal with it. Or perhaps is Paul applying wisdom even to his counsel? What does Paul actually disagree with? This advice. Look at his response here. He says, why are, you, why are you breaking my heart by pleading with me? Because what? I'm ready to die, to be imprisoned. Here's what was, was fueling and motivating the disciples' request for him not to go. It was not what he could do in Jerusalem or couldn't do. It was that they didn't want to see Paul suffer. And Paul said, I understand and I appreciate it. But that's not a wise reason not to go. I'm ready to die. I've I've thought that through. Right? If that happens, that happens. Sometimes Paul calls, or God calls his people to suffer. I think some of us have encountered that in our own lives, right? We, We feel like there's a decision we need to make for Christ, and it's going to involve sacrifice. And the people around us naturally don't want us to see us go through that sacrifice. And I say, hey, I mean, maybe you, instead of going and missioning and, and evangelizing to, to these people who are dangerous and in this place that's poor, maybe you can go evangelize to the people in L.A., right? They need Jesus, too. Which people need Jesus? Go, go, be, go be comfortable and safe and, and protected with these people. And perhaps <laughs> sometimes we have to say, I appreciate the concern, but, but that's, not, that's not the criteria sometimes that disciples are used to to discern with the disciples are called to, to make decisions with I think though consistently again throughout the scriptures you have this command to be wise so so the, some of the principles we laid out before one when God commands you something you obey it seems kind of baseline to being a Christian okay so we might have to say this the first real question is are we committed like Paul was to making disciples and we really said that's where that's where we're going that's what I'm going to do with my life, with my resources, my skills. That's what we're going to do as a community with our resources, our times, our skills. Have we decided to obey that call, that command? 
And then if we have, perhaps we shouldn't wait for God to come down and whisper in our ear and say, ta-da, go over here and do this. Perhaps we should say, okay, here's what's around me. Here are the people I know. Here's what I have. Here are my skills that I have. What's the best way for me to make disciples? What's the best use of my time? What's the best use of my resources? What's the best use of my skills? What things will distract me from fulfilling my purpose? What things will keep me from making disciples? What things will hold me down? What things will hinder me? And then to trust that God has things together. And then to to be in a place where we we don't have to look back if we got wind, right, that maybe we'd be free if we hadn't done that, where we have to second-guess ourselves. So we're going, no, no, no. I did what I was called to do. And the situation before me, I used wisdom. The counsel of my friends, Paul has friends coming, taking care of him while he's in prison. That's how prison worked here. Surely, over these two years, he's thinking and praying and talking with his friends and going, I know I'm supposed to go to Rome. Jesus told me I'm going to Rome. I just don't know how I'm getting there and what my role is in getting me there. Should I wait or should I act? How's God going to answer this, this prayer? And sometimes, again, not all the time, but sometimes God answers prayers through our action, through our wise action. If you and I are to be disciple makers, we need to follow the, the biblical principle for decision making, which is to obey, to put it all on the table, and then to be wise, innocent as doves, Jesus says, but wise as serpents. To evaluate your life and say, how best can God use me to make disciples? Who then will go make disciples? Who then will go make disciples? Decision making for disciple makers. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, the, the opportunity to worship this morning. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the, the early church, for not only the example they provide us, but for the heritage, the legacy that they leave us as we get to, to pick up the story where they left off, as we get to continue to advance the good news of your son and his resurrection to the world around us. We pray that you would... Enable us through your spirit with divine wisdom uh, to discern best where you have called us to go and what you called us to do. That as individuals and also as a community, fathers, as our church, uh, we would be able to, to faithfully witness to you in our world. We pray that, that we would uh, stay focused on you. We pray that we would constantly be drawn into uh, your program, your mission here in the world around us, that we would not get distracted uh, we're not waste time, Father, but that we would go out and, and spread your kingdom, further your work and your glory, and point all of us, uh, all those who are around us, to your Son and to the light that has broken into the world because of him. We love you, Father. And it's in your Son's name that all of God's people said, Amen.